This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of Paul Bunyan on our first look at folklore from the United States. And you'll see that it takes a village to raise a child, or at least the British Navy to keep him from accidentally destroying a seaside village. And there are actually two creatures this week, both of which are from the US. And you don't need me to tell you this, but if you see a baboon with long, noodly arms swinging dead wood at you, run. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 66, Truth in Advertising. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. We're nearly 100 episodes in, and we're just now getting to a story from the United States. That's because, compared to the rest of the world, America doesn't have a lot of folklore. And that makes sense. The US is comparatively very young. Sure, we have our cryptids like Bigfoot, some of the creatures of the week, and there are fairly entertaining fearsome critters, which are creatures made up by lumberjacks to one-up stories of other lumberjacks. We'll see a lot of that this week. Other than a few larger-than-life personalities, though, we don't have a lot in the way of folklore. As a quick note, you'll notice that I'm specifically mentioning the USA, because the Native Americans have folklore and mythology that is deep, rich, and awesome. I mean, monster skunk. Anyway, when you think of the US folklore, one name probably comes to mind. Paul Bunyan. There are statues of that famed multi-story tall lumberjack and his massive blue ox all around the northern United States. The quote-unquote real Paul Bunyan is really just an amalgamation of stories lumberjacks told each other in the bunkhouses. Maybe. I say maybe because there are definitely aspects to Paul Bunyan that are fake lore. Which... Yes, that's a real word. Fake lore is where someone writes a story, but insists that the story they made up is genuine folklore. It gets fuzzy. There is absolutely evidence for an oral tradition, but the character of Paul Bunyan was taken from that oral tradition, and stories about him were made up by authors and advertisers, who had nothing to do with the original Paul Bunyan stories. Anyway, the stories are fun, but even cooler, from my perspective, is that the making of the myth of Paul Bunyan is almost as interesting as the myths themselves. almost the end of a long day, and the men were weary. Standing there in the forest, chopping, stripping the logs and loading them, the men finally heard it. A blast like a trumpet coming from the camp. It was quitting time. They stepped over the logs on their way back to camp, saying hi to their leader. The man was seven feet tall and 300 pounds. He stood there, smoking from his pipe, which was basically like a bucket with a stem attached to it. He was such a prodigious smoker that there was a man constantly following him around to shovel tobacco into his bucket pipe. He put down the tree that he had used as a trumpet and welcomed everyone into the camp for dinner. And the leader, Paul Bunyan, sat down with them for a meal. But he was having problems. His beard. It was too thick and too manly. He kept losing forks and knives in the thing. Around utensils set three or four, he finally slammed his hands down on the table in rage. He told the cook to start making the special sauce and to find them the best of the best. Bunyan's camp was the best camp, and among the best lumberjacks, the two strongest were chosen for the toughest, most grueling, most prestigious job in the camp, cutting Paul Bunyan's beard. The pair had their own tent, and they didn't go out with the rest of the lumberjacks to work each day. They stayed back at camp, 
honing and sharpening their blades. The men who worked every day out in the woods, risking being crushed by trees or drowned or cut, did not envy the beard cutters, though. Their job was far worse. The cook brought out the lather, which was lard scented with pine oil because, hey, everyone likes to smell nice. It took six hours alone to lather the beard. And when it was all said and done, they were covered 12 pairs of eating utensils from the tangles. Sometime around 3 a.m., the real work began. They had to treat each strand of hair like a full-grown pine tree. They hacked and chopped for hours and hours, sweat pouring down on them, yelling out timber when they cut each hair. Then, nearly 18 hours after they started, they were finished. They were exhausted and their axes were dull, but they were done. They were never able to get that close, so even a freshly shaved Paul Bunyan still had kind of an uneven 5 o'clock shadow. Still, it was done. The pair of shavers collapsed, though they knew they would need to start sharpening their axes again. The next shave was only a few weeks away. Now, that's ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous in the way that some of the stories in this podcast have been ridiculous. The Little Mermaid, for example, was meant to be taken seriously. And even though, to me, Baba Yaga seems bizarre, she's a legitimately scary creature. Or at least that's how we're supposed to read her. Paul Bunyan, though, is supposed to be ridiculous. In the earliest stories, he was the result of bored lumberjacks trying to one-up each other with the best stories. Someone would claim to have a story from when they worked with the famous Paul Bunyan, and then another would add to it, and it would go from there. For example, Paul Bunyan was a great shot. So great, in fact, that he would look up in the sky, spot a bird, and shoot it right out of the air. The issue? Well, he was so good, and the bird was so high up, that it would have spoiled before it hit the ground. Paul thought on this, and found a solution. He started salting his bullets to preserve the game, for when it apparently left orbit and hit the ground. But he wasn't always the best. When he was learning to shoot, he was too eager. He saw a deer, fired his gun, but couldn't wait, and took off into the forest to see his kill. The problem was that he actually ran faster than his shot. As he slowed down, he was perturbed to see the deer still standing. But he was even more annoyed when he got a butt full of buckshot. There are literally hundreds of Paul Bunyan stories. And if he sounds like an American Hercules, or a lumberjack Superman, but not the super downer, gritty Zack Snyder lumberjack Superman, well, that's how he ended up being portrayed. Companies and marketers wanting to make an American folk hero latched onto the Paul Bunyan mythos and propelled it to national fame in the 1920s. But he started as a story for men to steal themselves, to do hard work that would claim the lives of many of their co-workers. There are so many stories about people getting killed by creatures in the woods because there were a lot of things in the woods that could kill you. Being less than sober also didn't help. The forests of North America in the mid to late 1800s were vast, dark, and dangerous places. They were said to be so thick that the lumberjacks had to leave them in order to get enough light to look at their watch to see that it was the middle of the afternoon. And that's not from a tall tale, that's apparently from an account. The normal day for a lumberjack was waking up at the crack of 3 a.m. to scarf down a quick breakfast and then start chopping. The people had different jobs in the camp. Some would chop, others would clear the felled trees of branches, and others would cut them into manageable 10 to 12 feet lengths. And then others would, in the mid to late 1800s before the railroads, hitch them to horses with chains. They would drag them down to a nearby river and throw them in, where they would move on to the next group of people, the river hogs. The river hogs would ride on top of the logs and guide them down the river, while others would run along the banks, freeing any that got stuck. They had to avoid a literal log jam, where one log would get stuck the wrong way, 
and where you had to do the extremely dangerous work of chopping it to pieces there in the river. With a massive heavy lumber pushing behind you, once the log was clear, you better get clear too, because you would immediately have tons of wood bearing down on you. The logs made their way to a lumber mill, where they would be chopped and made usable for building, and the majestic pine that stood for centuries in Minnesota would meet its final resting place as shingles in Chicago or a boardwalk in Omaha. Anyway, back at camp, the men, and they were virtually all men at this point, would work for eight hours, stop for a heavy, greasy lunch, and then work straight through to nightfall, sometimes putting in 16 to 18 hour days. I read in one place that they sometimes worked from 3 a.m. to 10 p.m., only stopping for lunch. Why? Well, one, in the 1880s, they were far, far from civilization, up there in the dense forests. So there wasn't much else to do, and your reputation around camp was based on how much you worked. So you didn't want to be seen as a slacker, or else the other guys at camp would let you know how they felt. It wasn't anything brutal, but just as you'd be going to bed, oh man, we forgot a tool about a half mile out from camp. You don't mind going to get that for us, right? Thanks. Then, as you were walking through the forest in temperatures that got down to 40 below, you'd hear sounds of things like the hide behind and the side hill gouger, dangerous creatures in the woods. Oh, and also, there wouldn't be a tool left out when you got there. You'd get back to camp to everyone asleep, and you'd know exactly what they thought about you. The men would lay in their bunks and smoke and tell stories, and that's where the earliest Paul Bunyan stories came from. But we'll get to that. There's some talk of drinking in the camps, but not a lot. I imagine you don't want to drink too much when you have to be up in a few hours to handle axes at three in the morning. The most manual labor at my job is picking up the books about the people that do the actual manual labor, and sometimes not even that about the Kindle version of one. There's sort of a romantic notion about going out in the woods for the winter and working hard all day, really feeling like you're making progress at something, and then turning in for a well-earned night of sleep after a long day. Those idealized notions of the 1800s actually led to the propagation of the Paul Bunyan mythos. As more jobs became mechanized and more people moved to the city, stories of Paul Bunyan and the men who worked hard in nature began to become more and more popular. Except for the people who actually remembered working hard in nature, they were the first to say that it was legitimately terrible. The camaraderie was nice and the pay was okay, but the hours, as we talked about, were ridiculously long. And surprise, it's hard to stay warm when it's 40 below out. So you have men snapping off fingers and toes and losing limbs and feet. Not only that, but in the early days, you were dealing with pine trees several feet in diameter and they were falling. Setting aside everyone's swinging blades, you were kind of always at risk of being crushed by one of those falling trees, one of the logs that got loose from the horses or drowned in the river after a log jam. Each winter, hundreds of men lost their lives. There were 20 graves along a river in Wisconsin from one season alone, and that's just from one river in one camp. The men will be buried where they fell, with a stick jutting out of the ground and their boots spiked on it. There was, unsurprisingly, a lot of turnover, so it was difficult for the workers to organize, and if someone was maimed but not killed, well, this was before workers' comp. The men would sometimes pass around a hat to collect money for their fellow worker as sort of a retirement fund, but that was it. Every Christmas, the workers would greet each other with a blessing in the camp, saying, may you live forever, and may I live to see you die. Which is pretty clever, but also highlights the dangers that stalk them every day out in the woods. And this is the world in which the Paul Bunyan myths originated, that men would face dangers every day. So they made a Superman 
who could not only withstand the dangers of the forest, but could fell trees for miles with a sneeze. In one story, Paul Bunyan wanted some snuff, a super fine smokeless tobacco that's meant to be inhaled through the nose. The person going into town knew that Paul's skin was so thick that he couldn't use any type of normal snuff, so the man found a very special type. It's said to feel like lightning and bees together, right up your nose. Well, it was past nightfall on Sunday when the man finally returned, and Paul was so eager that he took way too much. The man who went to town dove out of the way, just in time for the buttons on Paul's shirt to fly off like bullets when he inhaled for the sneeze. When he actually sneezed, he leveled all the trees from there to Marquette, Michigan, so about 11 miles. The second sneeze tore his pants off, blew all the trees off a mountain a mile away, and took Paul's teeth with it. No word on if he tried the lightning bee snuff again. There's also the story of the Round River. In that one, Paul and his friend, cleverly named the Big Swede, who, it might surprise you to learn, was a large Swedish gentleman, found some new woods up north to conquer. Even better, they found hills of pine trees overlooking a river, so the men could just chop them and roll them down. It said that the hill was so steep that the birds who lived on the side of it laid square eggs to keep them from rolling down. Well, they cleared out a few hillsides when they ran into a problem. The logs they dropped into the river at first came back around to catch up with the most recent logs. The river ran in a circle. Paul Bunyan didn't know what to do. He was stumped. And yes, that horrible pun just happened. The big Swede came up with an idea. They would build a lumber mill and saw the logs right there in the forest, making them easier to take south. Paul Bunyan's large blue ox, who we'll talk about, was hitched to the sheds and dragged them, and they eventually put together a nine-story lumber mill. They sawed so much that the sawdust filled the round river completely, making it walkable like a wood floor. Since they didn't need the horses to drag the logs, they all bet on horse races on their new perfectly circular track. The only trouble that they had with the new mill was that it was built so high that they had to put hinges on the smokestack because it had to be lowered occasionally so the clouds could pass. Babe the Blue Ox, as he'd come to be known, moved the bunk houses a lot. In fact, Paul would lift up the houses and put skids underneath so they could get right to work at a new place. He had one bunkhouse that was so big that it could house 2,000 men and occupied 20 acres of land. And it was so tall that the men at the top had to be called on the telephone to be woken up in the morning because they couldn't hear from such a great distance. Tall as it was, Paul Bunyan could still kick his initials into the ceiling. Sidebar, that's a really underrated skill, being able to kick your initials into things. And I have so many questions. Do you carve your initials into your boot and then kick, making it like a woodprint? Or is it multiple kicks and letters are just made out of several well-placed footmarks? Anyway, kicking your initials into things is apparently a lost art, and I guess we'll never know. Once the men reached the ground, their commute to work was very easy, because the bunkhouses were built on an incline, so the men could just roll out of bed and keep rolling straight to work. That winter, they ran into a problem. It got so cold that even the words froze right there in the air. If you said hello, it would not make it to its intended listener, but just hang there in the air, frozen. It made it easy, though, if you wanted to write a letter or make a late 19th century podcast because all you had to do was step outside and talk into the air. Then, you picked your frozen words from the sky, wrapped them up, and sent them on their way. The people you sent them to could thaw them and then hear your voice. The lumberjacks, way up there in the mountains doing hard and dangerous work, tended to swear a lot. And the camp was silent, 
until spring, when all the words unfroze at once, and the hillside rang for a day straight with the worst curse words you've ever heard. That winter, it got so cold that men died from overexertion because they had to walk around with so many overcoats on. The plus side of this was that the men became used to the cold, and the next winter, the winter of the dreaded blue snow, they didn't need to wear coats. They were so hot in the 50 below temperatures that they worked in short sleeves and straw hats. We'll see Paul go from a bunkhouse story to a national hero, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. When spring came, the lumberjacks would make their way down from the hills and into towns where they would joyfully part with their hard-earned pay at numerous saloons and brothels. This was a boon to the area, and it said, as the lumber industry took off in the north, whole towns would pop up in just a few months. One town in particular, after they learned that the camps would be added nearby, added, in addition to a few stores, 17 bars and two brothels between July 4th and December, in anticipation of the lumberjacks visiting in the spring. Speaking of Michigan, there was some debate as to where the stories of Paul Bunyan originated, with Michigan, Maine, and Wisconsin all being frontrunners. His story started in the lumberjack camps around 1885, with Wisconsin being the most popular location. Anyway, eventually, the larger-than-life character of Paul Bunyan attracted the notice of authors and writers. And it wasn't just people writing books for entertainment. It might surprise people, but one of the best-known collections of Paul Bunyan stories wasn't literary or academic in nature, but it was an advertising pamphlet for the Red River Lumber Company out in California. Laughhead, or Lawhead, I'm gonna call him Laughhead, a copywriter for the lumber company is quoted as saying that, starting out, he never meant to write a book or define a folklore hero. He just wanted to sell lumber. That was his job. He knew of Paul Bunyan from the camps. By that time, Paul Bunyan was old hat. It was the early 1900s, and all men knew of him. And the industry had changed. With railroads, the telegraph, and other technology, it wasn't as taxing, and men weren't as isolated. By the time his stories were sought by writers, the world in which Paul Bunyan lived, the one where a team of men lived in a camp for months on end, felled trees, lashed them to horses, and floated them down the river, was already disappearing. Regardless, Laughhead was looking for a way to sell lumber, and he needed a mascot. This famous character was good enough, so Laughhead used him. He found some possibly original stories, but didn't really think anything of making things up wholesale. Remember, he wasn't a researcher or a folklore collector. He was writing advertising copy. Paul Bunyan's blue ox had remained unnamed up until this point. Laugh had decided that he needed a name, and he and some of his co-workers settled on the cutest name they could think of. Babe. So that's how he got Babe the Blue Ox. Further muddying the waters, researchers later used some of Laughhead's names in their own works. Everyone already knew this blue ox by the cute name, so, so why not? The Red River Lumber Company trademarked an image of Bunyan for their logo, but they never copyrighted the 20-plus page book. They thought that if it was shared widely enough, then it would just be more name recognition for them. Remember, their primary aim was not writing a story or preserving folklore. It was selling lumber. And they were effective. The stories were printed and reprinted. They sent out thousands of booklets a year, and, I mean, we're still talking about the Red River Lumber Company, 100 years later, even after it shut down in the 1940s. And, in this booklet, in addition to a name for his blue ox, Paul got an origin story. 
in it, he was born in Maine. And when he was three weeks old, he found his calling in that the infant was so big that when he rolled, he destroyed four square miles of standing timber. They made a cradle for him, and they anchored him just off the coast where the waves could rock him to sleep. But they didn't think about the baby making waves. He apparently destroyed several seaside villages before the British Navy was called in to fire cannons next to his ears, waking the baby up and sending him back home. I should say that, in America, it's generally accepted now that Paul Bunyan was a giant and that he, as a baby, could level miles of pine trees and trash some villages by accident. As far as I can tell, that was a later invention. Early on, as I talked about, he was about 7 feet tall and 300 pounds, so super scarily big, but not like a jack-in-the-beanstalk giant. Anyway, this is the place where Bade the Blue Ox got his name, in addition to a few more of the cast of characters, like Brimstone Bill, who, when he died, his self-cremating body became a volcano in Hawaii, because of course it did. And Benny, the little ox that was actually way bigger than Babe. It grew so big because of pancakes, and met its unfortunate end, when eating its customary ration of way too many pancakes, it gobbled down an iron stove as well. That being moderately bad for digestion and staying alive, it died, it was buried, and the Black Hills of South Dakota are the result of its burial. I should talk about the other people, because Paul Bunyan only employed the best. Ink Slinger Jim, the clerk, didn't dot his I's or cross his T's, and saved Paul thousands of dollars in ink in one year alone. How this didn't just turn the I's and T's into lowercase L's is beyond me but he was lauded for his thriftiness. The cooks were also good, too. Men on Bunyan's crew needed a lot of food, and so they built a skillet the size of a lake. And to grease it, they would strap fat onto the feet of young boys and send them skating across the skillet, because this was well before any child labor laws, or workplace safety, or OSHA. Even the food made you more manly, too. The squirrels hung around the camp and would eat the scraps the men left. The wolves in the area were found eviscerated, by the more manly and aggressive squirrels. This was cute, until years later, the squirrels had to be hunted down and shot because they had become as big and ferocious as tigers. The other animals are funny too. For instance, the mosquitoes that hung around the camp dined on the manly blood of Paul's crew and grew way too big, so much so that they would carry off the lumberjacks in the night and the men would never be seen again. Paul thought about a solution to this, and because this has never gone wrong in the history of humanity messing with potentially invasive species, Paul learned of a super large bumblebee in Texas. He sent the camp cook down to Texas, and however many months later, the cook returned with several giant bumblebees, lasso behind him. Bumblebees, as we all know, are domesticated, so they didn't take kindly to mosquitoes attacking their new home. They soundly defeated the mosquito tribe. Happy that the men weren't being carried off in the night and murdered, Paul smiled and went back to work, thankful that there weren't any humorously deadly consequences of his meddling in nature. Well. There were. Of course, we all know this now. But if you put mosquitoes and bumblebees alone together, they're gonna get together. That's just science. All the bees rushed off into the forest after the mosquitoes and didn't come back. Then, after however long the gestational period is, for a giant bumblebee mosquito hybrid, the lumberjacks found a new, much worse threat flying at them from the forest. It was raised in the forest, so it didn't have any particular allegiance to the humans. And so they were way more aggressive and bloodthirsty than the mosquitoes alone had ever been. Paul Bunyan and his crew grabbed everything they could and ran away, finding a new spot not infested with giant insect abominations. Luckily, we Americans learned from Paul Bunyan's mistake and only continued to introduce invasive species hundreds upon hundreds of more times. 
After the large part of Americans played in the First World War, they were looking for a cultural hero of their own, an American mythical hero, like Hercules. And the stories of Paul Bunyan were perfectly suited to fill that role. He represented the pioneer spirit in a country where, by the 1920s, older people might remember that sort of thing, but the country was settled. Bunyan represented a raw, rugged, unpolished American power and the country's connection to its rural roots where, in the past 50 years, more and more people were moving to the city and the America of the 1800s was quickly disappearing. Paul and his time were molded and romanticized by marketers, hotel owners, tourism bureaus, corporations, union organizers, and more. From the period of the 1920s to the 1970s, he grew from the American Hercules to a backwoods buffoon. Countless books were written about him, and there's actually a Disney movie about him from the 50s. I linked a YouTube version in the show notes. And all these work to one end, killing Paul Bunyan. The stories of Paul Bunyan are interesting because no one thought to write them down for about 20 years. The stories were oral in nature, and the line between storyteller and the audience was blurry. People listened to the stories and added their own bits nightly. It wasn't until the early 1900s that people became academically interested in the stories. As someone who tries to dig into the quote-unquote original versions of myths and legends, the growth of the Paul Bunyan stories is super interesting to me. One frustration that the early researchers expressed was that the stories were different everywhere. There wasn't any Paul Bunyan canon, so to speak. The folklore was this living, breathing thing that changed every time it was told. And like I said, something happened to Paul when he was put down to paper. As the stories found their way out of the camps and into the mainstream society, they changed. They were no longer by working people for working people, separated from the world, but they were written by educated writers with urban sensibilities who were writing for other middle-class educated writers with urban sensibilities. In essence, when the stories were put down to paper, they were preserved, but they were changed, and the original Paul Bunyan died with them. The stories of Paul Bunyan are like the stories of the forests he cut down. The stories grew naturally at first, until authors, marketers, and others saw the commercial use in them, removed them from their original setting, and processed them. The result of the wood, which turned into shingles, pencils, and houses, has a bit of the original, but it doesn't look like the tree. The same is true with Paul Bunyan. We'll never know the original stories told in those bunkhouses long ago by men who worked such dangerous, long hours, because, for better or worse, those stories were taken and changed for various purposes. On this podcast, I try to get to the very early versions of the stories, but I also don't repeat them verbatim, often taking liberties with things like dialogue and character motivation. I was worried about this at first, but it seems to have been well-received. The Paul Bunyan story, story, is encouraging, though. In doing this podcast, I realized that I inadvertently brought the folklore back a step when it was just one person telling another person a story making small changes to account for time period and personal taste. I've also heard that people find the stories in this podcast so interesting that they tell other people, no doubt making their own changes, which is awesome. It's cool to think that we're all sort of participating in this tradition as old as storytelling itself while using this 21st century medium. That's it for this week. Next week, we're finally getting back to the King Arthur legends with Gawain. We'll get to that famous Green Knight, of course, but I was able to find some little-known stories about his early years in the French sources, and those stories are full of dog parties and knights who are terrible at their jobs. It's a really fun week. I want to say thanks to GB22, Sugabuzz, Sarah PNW, Malinka, MB Music, Blake Rudolph, Hammertine 9000, Maddo Smiley Face, Pelodi One, Eyes Gracie, Bookslover131119, Emma Grace Bloomer, Nikawai, LFC Duke 28, Bobby Ed, Red Herring Ocean, Girl Named Kristen, either Mrs. Criminer or Mr. Scrimmoner, 
who knows, and time on our hands for leaving reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, though it will probably be a little while before I'm able to announce your name on the show. I'm looking at the dates, and I'm officially one year behind. I cannot thank you all enough for leaving reviews on iTunes. It's awesome. It's really cool to hear from you. But once again, if you'd like to leave a review, you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a dog bantha costume, you know, the big shaggy beast the Tusken Raiders rode in Star Wars, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad free versions of the show that, sadly, don't return in greater numbers after they're easily startled. You can check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info. There are two creatures this week. In honor of US folklore, I'm going to be talking about some of the fearsome critters. These are creatures that came up in the conversations of those lumberjacks, and they became a class of creatures all their own. The first is the Agropelter, and its reign of terror extends from Maine to Oregon. One look at his long, noodly arms, and you might think he doesn't look so tough, almost kind of cute. Well, it's what's on the other side of those cute, noodly arms that should give you pause. On one end is a hairy body with the, quote, villainous face of an ape. Personally, I was not aware that apes were inherently villainous, but that just goes to show what I know. On the other side is a log, and it's coming right for your head. Quickly, they can sling logs as fast as a bullet, and if it hits the wayward lumberjack, well, that's it. They're very hard to catch or even see, and so people always seem to mistake it for a rotting tree branch that just fell on its own accord, instead of the much more likely ape with 12-foot-long noodly arms. The next creature requires a little explaining. It's called the Wind Tosser, and it's a triangular prism, and it has four legs on each of the three flat sides of its body, and its head and tail are both on a swivel, no one knows if it's because the wind tosser has three times the organs of a creature, or, like the cat, it has nine lives, times three, but they are very hard to kill. You can shoot them, beat them, burn them, or trap them, and they always seem to find a way free. They also always land on their feet, because they have feet on every side and their heads on a swivel. And when it lands, watch out, because it has the rage of a wolverine. The animal, not the Hugh Jackman version. Though I guess also the Hugh Jackman version. And if it's coming after you, you should try to get to a river, because there's only one way to kill the wind tosser, tubes. All three of its sides are just as persistent, so they will all stretch out and try to latch onto their side of the pipe. And in doing so, the wind tosser will tear itself apart. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Loot Crate for sponsoring this episode. If you're on a quest for epic gear and collectibles, Loot Crate offers a wide range of pop culture items every month, all for less than 20 bucks. This month's theme salutes mystery solvers from Stranger Things, Batman, The X-Files, Marvel's Jessica Jones, and one lucky subscriber will win a mega crate with signed copies of Jessica Jones' Alias, volumes one through four. Just be sure to subscribe by 9 p.m. Pacific time on the 19th to receive this month's crate and save $3 on your subscription when you go to lootcrate.com slash legends and enter code legends. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.